Welcome back to a very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest today is John Zanoff, founder and managing partner at Stella Ventures. Stella is an early stage venture fund focused on the fintech space. Fintech? A thing you might have heard of. John's also the founder of Empire Startups, which is another thing you might have heard of. You may even know him as the ghost of fintech future. He's been on before as a co-host, and we collaborate a lot between For Fintech's Sake and Empire Startups. Excited to finally sit down and talk through the John story, what he's running after with Stella Ventures, and what he sees in his magical crystal ball for the future of fintech. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Zanoff. John Zanoff, welcome to For Fintech Sake, my friend. How are you doing today? It's great to be here. This is one of my favorite clubhouse rooms, so thanks for inviting me. You are in the wrong place, my friend. Wrong place. That is... Why do I see your face right now? I thought this was clubhouse. Yeah, and why are we gonna? Why are we not just gonna talk about how awesome the other one is, and then when they leave, tell them that they're horrible, horrible people? We're just gonna have a conversation one on one. How about that? Well, thanks for inviting me on stage, regardless of which stage it is. I'm I'm really stoked to catch up. And for the listeners, that's John giving me shit that I refuse to get on Clubhouse, and also talking shit generally about the world of fintech on Clubhouse. And from there, we dive in. So yeah, it's good to have you here, man. So this is a long time coming, man. You and I have been friends for what, like four years, three years, something like that. We've, you know, spent some beautiful times in, in very romantic situations in New York, drinking wine together. And we're, we're finally doing this, man. We've been talking about doing a podcast for, I think, since we met. Or actually, I don't think I had the podcast when we first met. Maybe like the second year that I came to Empire or something like that. Listen, it's definitely a good story about you know, folks that you know on Twitter, like-minded folks that you know on Twitter. I like like the cut of your jib, and uh, and and got to meet. I think in whether it be in in New York or in in Vegas, but for sure, long time coming. I can't honestly, I can't believe you're torturing your audience by by having me on the program for for 45 minutes. Nah, I torture him every week anyway. I mean, you know, we might as well talk about a little New York stuff and a little Stella Ventures and a little John. So let's let's go to that. Let's go to the first question that I have for you, which all of these questions are going to be tainted with some sort of shade because that's the relationship we have. But your LinkedIn says ghost of fintech future. First question, how does one become the ghost of fintech future? And maybe this is like just the John background of how you got to here. And the second question is, did you give yourself this nickname or was it appointed to you from someone else we're just going straight to the t and and that's fantastic so let's do it i'll give you the full the full story i mean i spent 15 years in product management and i set the story up that way because for the product managers out there product management is all downside and zero upside these are the folks who just you know, have a chip on their shoulder that things could be better and they're willing to do whatever it takes um, to, to deliver a, a beautiful customer experience. And in the process, they realize um, really none of the upside. And, and it gets even worse if you're in a large financial institution. And so, you know, at the time I was working for the largest asset manager in the world, we'll, um, for anonymity, call them... BlackRock. So I'm at BlackRock, <laughs> and and this is a place in a in an in an institution that large that that a product manager can spend their entire career just updating Jira tickets. So not talking to customers, not delivering anything amazing. You're updating Jira tickets for for years on end, and I'm in a room. And just set the context. You know, my manager at the time is the type of guy that, you know, if he's business casual, it's it's because it's like a Sunday in the office. He It's suit and tie every day. His name's Andrew Wilson. He's actually phenomenal, um, super, super smart guy. But I'm in there with Andrew in, in, in quite the buttoned up environment. And, you know, after two years or three years of updating Jira as a product manager, uh, as a product leader, you know, I just said, Andrew, 
I have absolutely no idea what we're going to do next. And I have no idea what's going to get delivered. Uh, and you know what? I don't give a shit. It was very much like a who's with me walking out. And I said that the, our job and our North Star really isn't to decide what the next feature is that's going to get built. It's what's this going to look like in the future. And it was one of those moments where I could have been fired because I just told them that I don't give a you know what, what the next feature that's going to come out of the, of the technology organization is. So my job is to predict the future. And I wrote on my whiteboard, goes to FinTech future and sort of underlined it, dropped the marker. And, and it was, it was one of the, it could have gone either way. And the, you know, the awesome part was not the least of which is Angie's a pretty, pretty sharp dude. You know, he, he took it really well. And in fact, it became a mantra. It became a North star, for the, for the product team, for the product marketing team, that your job as a product manager isn't to figure out and deliver that next feature for, for a customer that's been waiting for it. It's to figure out where the product's going to be, you know, five years, 10 years down the road. So, yeah, in a way, I, I gave myself that that title uh, to, you know, like I said, it, it could have been, you know, the last title I gave myself at, the, at said asset manager, but it ended up, it ended up working out really, really well because it, it in some regards, changed the culture of the product organization after that. It's an interesting, like dropping the marker, like dropping the mic. It's like one of the nerdiest things I've ever heard. Welcome to product management. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If, so jumping from that to Techstars, like how, how does one go from this background of Goldman, Black or BlackRock, not BlackRock, obviously we're <laughs> obviously, referring obviously, to different yeah. companies here. And none of this is visible on your LinkedIn. It's all very hidden. So how, how do you make that jump? Right. Because I think of most Techstars MDs as you know, you had been a founder, I guess, by that point, but like multiple time founders raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, yada, 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 most impressive person at the conference, whatever. And I'm not saying you aren't, but the, you know, more kind of corporate background is not something that I think of as leading to that. So how did, how did that happen? And tell us that story. Yeah. Completely atypical journey into, into venture and into a company like Techstars. The thing that did along the way, when you talk to people, uh, you know, worked at some of the most prestigious investment banks and the largest asset manager in the world, and you talk to them at the time, you know, 10 years ago about how they embrace new technologies, how they bring new technologies into the company, and they'd, they'd, they'd look at you with blank stares. You know, new technologies for them was, was a, you know, new version of a, of a BlackBerry to, 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 um, to, to unfortunately be serious. And so... Um, you know, founded a company called Empire Startups, which wasn't, you know, wasn't a VC creating a media company as is as is popular today, but was just about connecting with like-minded, you know, smart people trying to build cool things. And when Techstars was going to spin up their very first fintech program, a guy by the name of Greg Rogers founded the fintech program in London. He was coming to New York. He's like, you know what? Who do I need to know in the fintech community to get the word out to entrepreneurs and reach out to me of, uh, of, of all people? It was, I remember it to this day because I'm like, why is, why is, why is this tech stars person reaching out to, uh, to, to, to lowly me just working at a large asset manager? Flash forward, you know, he found out, okay, I'm running a, a product organization and have run product organizations, a successful um, operator in financial services and invited me into mentor and a bit of the rest is, is history. I tell you, the funny thing is, though, you, you work at some of those shops in financial services and you get some street cred. Um, you know, if, if nothing else, OK, you're, you're working around the clock, you're working your butt off, but you're a pretty smart cookie if you're if you're at those shops. Techstars had no Fs to give about the fact that I was working for the largest asset manager. They deny it. They deny it to this day. But two of my favorite people, uh, Nicole Gleros, who's just a brilliant mentor of mine, he's a partner at Techstars, the chief investment strategy officer, and, a, and, a, and another partner, Cody Sanders. I met them in the interview process. And as soon as I told them traditional financial services, like click, they were like lights out. They were like, their eyes were open, but they were, they were asleep. And, but, you know, I eventually based on the fact that I'd been there and done that and delivered product to, uh, in, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of, of customers, um, I, I was able to, uh, to earn my stripes, uh, starting as a mentor 
um, and then joining as you know a pseudo intern and and had the opportunity to, to, to take over the program and, and like I mentioned you know led led the last twenty eight fintech investments for for techstars in, in New York. Talk to me a little bit about like what it was like in New York in what was that 2016, 2017 when you were kind of starting to get going there and like what was the fintech ecosystem like at that point? Like obviously you kind of have a little bit of a head start with that specific street on which you have cred of wall, but what else, what else was going on? I mean, I almost think of New York as like this place where people from the UK or from other portions of the United States like expand to because you kind of have to have an office there eventually in fintech, I think, but was there much percolating? Were you like willing this thing into existence? What did it, what did it look like then? You know, in some ways, I mean, forget, I mean, I'll go back to 2010, 2011, really when, when we started the, the FinTech meetups in New York, it was, we weren't the first FinTech meetup. It was like the second FinTech meetup. Um, there, there weren't FinTech meetups in Boston or DC or even San Francisco at the, at the time. And to be honest, it was a ton of fun. It was, in some regards, it's what folks use Twitter today for. Heard folks this week talking about the fact that sometimes they'll, they'll say things on Twitter and find like-minded people that even their closest friends and even their family don't understand. And it's because everyone is cut from the same cloth and really wanted to innovate around financial wellness and efficiency and equality in the in the fintech community and, and that's what you had in in person back in 2010 2011 a bunch of people who said you know they didn't even know i hate to be cliche but they didn't even know it was fintech but they knew they were working on something cool in payments lending wealth gap markets or whatnot and they finally found a group of people who you know every month which was staggering but every month would want to come together and just talk about fintech innovation and so it was it was it was really strong um well before 2016 2017 and i think the the change in the 2015 2016 were incumbents deciding to look outside their walls like that was the first significant shift in the ecosystem in new york where there were labs, innovation programs, studios, accelerators, one could argue way too much noise, and one could argue innovation theater. But the first time you had all these incumbents that that were hungry for technology. And you know, revenue is is a is a heck of a drug. Revenue is is phenomenal, non-dilutive capitals for 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 both B2B companies and, and consumer companies that are running pilots with with banks. So that was the big I think that was the big shift. That was the big sentiment change. You know, the fact that we could go to, you know, Rise New York, which is sponsored by Barclays, a big co-working space, and just hang out with like-minded people for the first time was was uh, was a huge shift in in 2015, 2016. When did you start the conference? When did Empire? I mean, I know you've been running Empire for a while, but when did that turn into this kind of like once a year big thing outside of the additional stuff you do on the side with it? Yeah, you know, we became synonymous with with FinTech Week on on both coasts and. Um, I, I'd say relatively early in in Toronto, which has honestly been a, a fintech hub for for thirty years. But uh, the Twitter sphere just realized that Toronto was a fintech hub in the last couple of years, and it, it ended up it ended up being completely organic. So this wasn't a bit empire as a business where you know, you're, um, you have this vision and you implement the roadmap and it happens. It was, it was super, super organic. It was, you know what, John, this was an awesome meetup, you know, thinking about Quilva or Moneyline or Betterment or LendUp, any of them coming by at the seed stage at a, at a monthly, you know, having pizza with, with other founders and sharing what they had, they had learned and the fact that, Oh my God, they just landed a $1.5 million seed rounds. Right. Ah, the good old days. That's like, that's like venture in the 1850s, $1.5 million seed round. Yeah. I mean, that's like, yeah, that's total, that's total comp for, uh, for, a, for a, a bass partnerships person these days, but uh, we won't get into, <laughs> we won't get into, <laughs> We won't get into venture bloat uh, yet. What I, what I was saying is that, that it was folks just saying, you know, what this like once a month, two hours, like we want to we want to dig in. We have just an insatiable appetite. These are you know folks would come in and literally say, I finally found my people. Can we get together more often? And Empire grew from there. And Empire to this day 
runs as an absolute break-even business, you know, the cost of tickets are, are, are exactly what, what the things cost us to, uh, to, to run. And, you know, just couldn't be more proud that Empire's played a small role in, in building the fintech ecosystem. And probably more relevantly for today is it's the largest fintech platform in the world. And it's, uh, you know, and Stella Ventures leveraging the largest fintech platform in the world for where every pre-seed and seed stage fintech company goes first is uh, is a tremendous advantage. And, and we take that responsibility very seriously. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said, at the kind of the preamble in the beginning of this, you know, I want to be very careful about being too nice to you here. And I definitely don't want you to, you know, feel like you're, you're doing anything right, but I would say. You've never risked that, but and just in case <laughs> you think you're at the line um, just for clarity. All right, cool. I can, I, I've done enough negativity that I can say one nice thing about you, I guess. And we can still, we can still keep it net negative. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, the, my first time at empire, I think was what? Uh, 27 no 2018 and that was before I went to money 2020 I think it was like my real first conference outside of like a Finnovate which is very I love Finnovate for the record but it is very like you know grab your really bad cup of coffee and go sit amongst you know 500 other bankers and watch some pretty cool demos but you just kind of sit there and watch whereas Empire was number one like the number of people and the amount of business that we got done when I was at MBKC within like a two-day period inside and outside of the conference just being in New York during FinTech week I mean it was it was unheard of the ability to go to EY during the day, meet a potential partner, the ability to go like have drinks with everyone at night. And like, uh, uh, part of me, I guess is like almost reminiscing because I haven't left my house in a year and a half, but the, you know, the, there's so much to be said about that. And it's really cool to see the way that that community came together. And like, I, I wish that there was a way to me- measure the amount of business that gets done from something like that. I don't think there ever is any way to, but just watching deals happen left and right and relationships get built kind of thing. You know, it wasn't just like, Hey, sign this MSA. It was like, Oh, great to meet you for the first time ever. Let's get to actually know each other. And everybody was like a real human, you know, sometimes a, I keep throwing Finnovate under the bus. Like I love Finnovate, but you know, you just exchange business cards and it's almost like, what can you do for me? What can I do for you? And that's not the way that empire functions. It's very much relationship building focused on the humanity of it all. Yeah. And won't get too much in a community, a bit of a nebulous title, but a lot of folks throw community out and that's, that's, that's a great way to describe what we mean by community. These are folks interacting in person on a regular basis and trying to help each other. And, you know, you sit down at a large conference in no shade um, to any of those, uh, those larger scale events, but, you know, the awkward are these seats taken at, you know, during lunchtime versus, what might happen at an empire event, which is like, Oh, you should like sit with us because I want to introduce you to these, these several people. And, you know, that continues to be the, the, the strong ecosystem we've, we've been able to, to nurture, you know, not just in, in New York, but across North America. Yeah. I mean, you're really annoying and I should never say the word community in front of you. Cause then you just get on your community soapbox and talk to me <laughs> yeah. about community. Um, but it, it is, I mean, as much as I mess with you, it is a trend, right? Like from your time at, Techstars, building that community, building empire at the same time, I mean, bringing in mentors from all across the world, like community has been this thing that you've kind of been building around you purposefully and by accident, I think for a number of years now. And that kind of takes me to the next step in John's life you're working on right now, which you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, but I want to dig into it more, which is Stella Ventures and building a community there. And I think a very unique I said community 75 times now, but community driven thesis of a certain degree. So tell us about Stella. (laughs) Tell us about Stella and I'll stop saying community. So community, Stella, 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 community venture firm. (laughs) So uh, listen, uh, you know, after leading 28 investments at Techstars and getting to work alongside of some of those prolific early stage investors in the world, Brad Fell, David Cohen uh, launched Stella Ventures, a $20 million early stage fintech fund focused on the US and, and Canada. And when I say early stage, we're talking pre-seed and seed, and specifically the dearth of capital that can get conviction around not just pre-revenue companies, but even pre-product companies. You know, no pattern matching in the world if you don't have the domain expertise. And we can get into 
former operators as VCs versus non-former operators as VCs, but the pattern matching becomes very difficult if you're talking about uh, companies that you can't take a look at, at, at traction and unit economics. Um, but that's what I that's what I've done. So you know, after several years at TechStars, um, you know, thrilled to be continuing to invest in the next great founders. And when I talked about the the unicorns that have participated on the Empire platform over the year, really that's that's what Stella Ventures is about, is about connecting with founders the day they kick off a company, supporting them. We'll overuse community, but what I mean by community is helping get the word out about what they're doing, giving them a platform, helping them recruit their founder, helping them find their first seed check. Uh, that's the that's the advantage of Stellar Ventures. I mean, sounds like so much of that is like the competitive advantage is the relationships that you've built, right? Like we'll pivot from community to relationships, but like you've you've known these people a long time, right? You've known the, whatever founder you're going to write a, a really early stage check into, even if it is you know fifty hundred k sub sub what would you know blow somebody's mind at the the VC firm you meant you mentioned earlier. It, it's really important time frame, right? And the ability to get in at that stage, like it almost you're an actual investor that thinks about these things in codified thesis driven ways. I've made two angel investments in my life. And both of them are basically like friends that are way smarter than me that I, I understand one of those two companies pretty well. And I, the other one, I'm just like, I don't know, take my money and run and in you, I trust. But it sounds like there's, there's pieces of overlap there where it's just like knowing and having access to the deal flow of very unique people sitting in your position because of the relationships you've built around you. And not maybe overthinking the space or the TAM or the this or the that, but just like, this is a founder that's going to go run through walls and I'm going to help them run through walls and like, you know, knock down a brick or two before they get there kind of a thing. So it sounds like basically you stole your investment thesis from me, I guess is my takeaway. (laughs) Everything that I've accomplished, I I owe to you, Zach. Right. That's how that works. Yeah. Yeah. that, That is how it works. That could be the new tagline, actually, for the for the program. Yeah, I think it's the opposite. If anything, I'm most of my shit, most of my success is thanks to you. So, I, as much as we joke, mine's actually not a joke. You've done a ton for me. But, anyways, continue, or I'm going to keep being nice. The, <laughs> yeah, keep, honestly, this is this is my my wife isn't going to be very happy if all of a sudden I'm uh, you know my head my head gets big. But um, it 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 it's hugely important for several reasons it is it is both your ability to source as a vc it's both your ability to source and your question was the importance of relationships the ability to source and your ability to win deals it's fantastic that we have a fintech platform that every early stage fintech company wants to be involved with for a bunch of reasons i said and then it's relationships uh, and connectivity that end up helping us helping us win deals the deals that I've won over the last 20 investments at Techstars, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the the valuation is is impressive. The the name on the door is in, impressive. What's what's even more impressive is if you help a company land a VP of engineering, you can be sure you're getting an allocation in that in that seed deal if you land them their their VP of engineering. So that's you know that's that's why relationships really matter. I think on top of that. You know, founders want to be around other successful founders, you know, not just because they've got a million followers on Twitter or Clubhouse, but because they've been there and done that and they have that tribal knowledge. And so Stella is surrounded by venture scouts like, you know, Adam Brown, the CEO of of, uh, of Kencho, which actually did S&P, Sam Hodges, who, uh, who who's a founding uh, USCO funding circle and now and now vouch all scouts, all folks that I've had a relationship with a decade, all excited to continue to support early stage founders. And and yeah, it comes down to relationships. It it does come down to relationships, right? But it almost sounds like it's the overlap of it's fascinating because it sounds like the muscles that you developed in those investments that you did at Techstars are like the exact same, like you're just like changing gyms or something, right? Like you were, you were using the same muscles at Techstars that you're going to use here. It's like put you together with the right mentors, maybe skip the mentor madness where you put them through, you know, two weeks of, in you know, incredible amounts of stress and straight to the folks that you know will be most helpful, but it's the same same ideas, right? Connect them to connect them to revenue, connect them to other investors and connect them to folks that can work for and with them. 
kind of thing, right? It's like, it's not rocket science, but it takes years to be able to build up the muscles to be able to do that, I think. Just to keep it dirt simple from a platform standpoint, it's about it's about business development or it's about access to capital. I mean, those are the two things. And and I'd say the third would be recruiting. I'd say the, the, but the, to use your gym analogy or, 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 or modeling off a, a similar structure, the biggest parallel is access to as much data as humanly possible about the performance of early stage founders at the pre-seed and seed stage. It really isn't, you can, you can be as thesis driven as you want, but it's not about the product and market. It, it's, it's about the ability of early stage founders to execute and for you to pattern match and evaluate their performance. You needed to inundate them with feedback, inundate them with resources, inundate them with data, see how they process that data, see how they react. And that will give you the conviction to, to double and triple down. And, and that's what that's what we did at Techstars. And, and that's what Stellar Ventures will continue to do. It makes sense. So one of the other things that is overlappy here is the, <laughs> so we, we share a number of overlappy. Can we dub like a better word in there? Afterwards? No, we're going with in post in post-production. <laughs> we're going with overlappy. I don't, I apparently okay, you okay. don't listen every week. Cause I make up at least one word every week. There's at least one new word that gets gets put into the Webster dictionary at the end of every for fintech sake episode. I thought you knew during the, during the pandemic, my belly has started to overlap my pants. <laughs> I was going to ask you about fitness and about that whoop strap you're wearing at the end. So yeah, we, we will come back to your belly's overlappiness. So much. That's so much more exciting than, than fintech. <laughs> Let's do it. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but the o- other overlappy piece what, that reminds me of, committing to overlappy is Ladies and gentlemen i've ruined that <laughs> i've been ruined bro i've been ruined for a while is the we refer to them i think as jedi mind tricks right like you and i share a number of I, well, I, it's weird for me to say it. They're not companies I've invested in, but back when I was in BKC, NBKC was investing and we shared deal flow. We shared a number of different partners and investments. And a lot of the folks that I would talk to, um, would say John's a madman, number one. And number two, like he's a different person in program and out of program. And then specifically when he's in program, he has these Jedi mind tricks that are not fun, but are also incredibly valuable and force them to like take a very deep introspective look. So what are some of those for folks that are listening, either on the founder side or, you know, maybe angel investors or early stage seed investors? What are the responsibilities of your early stage VCs or, or to help capitalize the company. It's not a single check. It's an extension of a network, an extension of resources, an extension of, of ways to think about your business to help get you capital. Now, Techstars trains in a number of dark arts around fundraising that, you know, to be to be candid, are, 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 are loosely proprietary and I won't get into every Jedi trick. But we cohabitated with companies for three months at a time, and it was hugely important for me to help the companies understand the difference between you know, motion and progress. Every time I heard, every time you hear a founder say, you know, how are things going? Oh, killing it. You know, like what the heck does killing it? You know, okay, bro. Um, but how's the business doing? And getting every founder that that I invested in at a point that they could they could quickly course correct, check themselves, course correct, and make sure they were moving as as fast as humanly possible in a very intellectually honest way were what I think some would call Jedi mind tricks. Others will um, to this day have PTSD waking up in the middle of the night with me asking them about their KPIs. And in fact, uh, you know, during this, during this podcast, during this clubhouse room, probably slacking a couple about their, about their KPIs, but that's what it, that's what it, that's what it amounts to. It all amounts to an early stage company being able to digest and action data as, as, as fast as humanly possible. And I'm using data generically, but data could be feedback from customers. Data could be metrics around, around your app. But are you taking a data-driven approach? And are you being really, really honest about, about needing to change direction? Because there's a huge cliff, whether it be after an accelerator 
or after that seed check, there's a cliff where all of a sudden folks are leaving you alone. Um, you know, maybe you have a couple bucks in the bank to be hiring, but are you going the right direction? And I think anyone who's worked for a venture backed company at a certain point where things reach steady state after the, after the press release and before your next monster round where um, everyone's busy, but are they making progress? And the, and the Jedi mind tricks tend to be around getting a very smart founder to be eyes wide open about what's happening. And, and keep in mind, and I, and I say, I would say this a lot, just the best founders are the most stubborn and then they need the most data. And so the tricks were forcing them to, to continually look at, at, at data so that I didn't have to worry about them. Six months later, I wouldn't get the call that, you know, John, we need help. We're, you know, we're out of runway and we just started racing, you know, for the last six months in the, in the wrong direction. That's a, that's a great way to, to honestly be a terrible early stage fintech investor. Yeah. I mean, the, the rigorous focus associated with actually making progress is not fun. And it's also not fun to be the person that's like, Hey, here's a mirror. And you've been doing this when you told me you were going to do this. And this is the thing that actually moves your business needle. Not that like not. And I mean, shooting myself in the foot a little bit here, like not being on that podcast, right? Like actually being heads down building. And I'm curious with that thought, what are, what's some of the overlap that you see on the motion side? Like, what are some of the things that you continuously see company to company or, you know, kind of themes that you see of what folks do, what's that's motion. That's not actually driving progress in an early stage. And for context, these are exceptionally talented founders. These are folks that I would argue are doing things that, that I couldn't accomplish. I, I just happen to have a wider view than they have at, at at the current time, or I have more anecdotal um, evidence and real life evidence than, than they have at the, at the current time. And I'd say a, a huge theme is you know, maybe the analogy is practicing the flashcards, you know, um, you know, continuing to double down. It's okay if you're, if you're really good at something and that helps your business, of course, double down. But if you are a, you know, uh, consumer business and focused more on partnerships, um, whether or not those partnerships are driving your CAC down or not, that would be an example of, of founders just really focusing on the flashcards they know. The same thing goes for overly technical founders, for non-technical founders, um, you know, focusing on areas of the business really not driving, uh, you know, business growth, traction, or, or access to, to capital. Yeah. I mean, we've been, uh, we've been joking about clubhouse a lot, but I would, I would maybe put clubhouse into that too. Like I, I get clubhouse as uh, probably every listener that is on there knows sends every single notification that one could possibly receive in a day about anything that has happened. And it really, I mean, not to call any specific person out, but like it blows my mind. Some of the precede pre-series a founders ceos that are getting onto these things and just kind of like having a little circular agreement we'll call it circular agreement uh about what's going on in the world i'm just like how do you how do you have time for this and you have a family like what are you doing here yeah what what metrics are really moving 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 your business i mean it gets into obviously there are a lot of early stage vcs that um that continue to to double down on their influence on clubhouse and other platforms and it is in the spirit of uh, establishing themselves as thought leaders with an ultimate key result or sorry ultimate objective of of driving deal flow um but I think there's a limit to it. It's, it's hard. Um, it is, I know it's hard for, for some LPs to see some of their GPs spending just so much time on clubhouse. I think, I mean, there, there are a few absolutely fascinating things about, about, about clubhouse and about certain primarily West coast VCs, but there are a couple of East coast VCs that play Kingmaker. It's happening in, it's happening in FinTech and it's an interesting dynamic. Um, I, I think that's more, more interesting. It's when you, capitalize a company to the extent that that they can kill some of their early competition um and that's that's the that's the best thing that i could say about the venture bloat happening in in late stage tech late stage fintech right now with the monster rounds you know does robin hood you know explain to me what robin hood could possibly do with a billion dollars i can tell you they can outbid 
their next hundred competitors for the next ten years with uh, with a, with a with a billion dollars. And that and that that king making dynamic is 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 an interesting. I don't know, relatively new in the last five years dynamic of, of, uh, of fintech. But it was all for liquidity, John. We, the only reason we raised this money was for liquidity because our regulators were, were just breathing down our necks, breathing down our necks. All right. I'm gonna, I've done a really good job over the past couple of weeks of not just throwing massive shade on Robinhood. So we're going to keep moving. I think Charlie Munger did a great job of that the other day, by the way. So if anybody wants to go listen to Charlie Munger on Yahoo Finance about Robinhood, I recommend that Google because everything he says is what I would say. Well, to pat myself on the back, I threw enough shade two years ago, three years ago when they when they when they launched. I don't need to continue to do it. Thank you. This is I agree with that as well. When the like the first or second day that everything started to happen, I got a a note from a couple old folks at MBKC and a couple old folks that I used to work with in the venture space then, and they were like, "Hey, you you were saying this a few years ago," and I was like, "Yeah, I've hated them from the beginning, and I'm very open about it." Like, anyways, I I, I appreciate what the company has done for the space. I mean, you used to work at E Trade, and you know some of the what they've done there, but I don't see any argument in the world that says that the average American should really have pushed notification access to leverage. So anyways, we are talking about it without talking about it here. Let's move on to the next thing. Um, I wanted to dive in to specifically, you know, a lot of founders listen to the show, a lot of founders at an early stage, especially listening to the show, trying to learn about the regulatory pieces and who they should be talking to, yada, yada. So with Stella as kind of the the lens that I'm asking this question through, um, what companies are you excited about? Like, who are you? What what are the themes that you're kind of going after? Are there any specific parts of fintech that you're most excited about? Yada yada yada. Yeah, I'd love to tell you more about Stella Ventures. You know, first and foremost, if you want to have fun trolling any VC when you ask them about their thesis, stop them if all they do is talk about the portfolio companies. You got to ask, did they find that thesis or, or did their thesis find them? But I'll say, you know, first and foremost, everything is in fintech. But what is fintech? It, it, typical subsectors, lending, capital markets, wealth, payments, you name it. We'll, we'll invest in businesses where the core moat uh, or the core risks have to do with financial technology. So we won't invest in anything that's bolting on a, a, a debit card onto uh, onto a completely different vertical because we're gonna we're gonna call it fintech. Now, to talk specifically about themes that, that we get really excited for, I talk a lot about. Um, businesses that have the potential to completely disrupt a legacy financial product. And if you think about the overwhelming majority of financial products today and how they came to be and their genesis and why they exist, it usually comes down to, you know, technical debt, a regulatory burden, or this is how the business has, has always made money. And so, there are a lot of fintech companies out there that rather than disrupting a legacy product, they're taking an existing financial product and they market it to a new segment of customers. And this can make sense. You can, you can build a large business this way because if you market to a specific set, if you hyper-focus on a specific set of companies, you completely change the unit economics of that particular business. Or in other words, you're able to acquire customers and retain customers in a more effective manner than than anyone previously, but at Silver Ventures we we like to see that, but we also like to see new technologies disrupting and sunsetting legacy products. So I'll give you you know like I said, trolling VCs, not just talking about the portfolio. I'll talk about a couple companies that are that are in my portfolio, and and then and then of course mention some that are not. So two companies to mention that are disrupting legacy financial products. The first is an insure tech company called Waffle. And what they say is, you know, why do I have to insure my car and my phone screen and my pet separately? This team studied the cross correlation of risk at MIT and that they, they know that if they analyze that cross correlation of risk, they can predict your insurance risk as much as 9% more accurate, more accurately than traditional insurance underwriting models. They know that 
if you're insuring your pet Rottweiler, guess what? Obviously, your condo insurance is going to be a little more expensive as uh, as you're going to have to replace your your couch that Bowser ate last week. Another interesting company, Finch, disrupting the legacy checking account. They question assumptions around why do, why do checking accounts not offer interest and why are their fees so high? Well, technical debt has led to a highly paper-driven manual process and liquidity challenges. And they're bringing new technologies to bear that basically say, you know what, your checking account can actually realize market returns. And we're going to solve those liquidity challenges. So, um, two companies, but any, you know, founders who, who have the opportunity to sunset a traditional financial product, I'd love to, I'd love to hear about what you're, what you're doing. But as promised, I mean, a company that's, that's on our radar that we haven't invested in. Tremendous founder, actually a tech stars company went through the insure tech program, a company called of color. And what of color knows is that a huge number of Americans, actually just walk away from their 401k match for a variety of reasons. It may be because they don't understand it. It may be because of a, of a liquidity challenge or other financial burden. You know, it's tough to say, I'm going to put this money in this, this account for 30 years down the road versus paying for groceries. And so what they're doing is they're innovating around unique low interest lending products. That means what I, that mean with a click of a button, Employees will be able to always opt in to that free money in their 401k match. And the, the, the thematic shift that we're seeing that's letting this happen all in one regard, a huge number of Americans and globally are moving towards being solopreneurs and entrepreneurship and, and the gig economy. Um, and so you'd argue they're moving away from larger companies, but at the same time, those larger companies and even small and medium sized businesses have a new awareness that's only really existed for the last five years that says it's our responsibility as an employer to bring financial wellness solutions to, to our employees. And in this particular case, especially our diverse employees and, and, and employees of color, of color. So very excited about, about what they're doing, innovating around lending in the 401k space. That's really interesting. I interviewed someone last week, a guy named Aaron Shapiro that runs a company called Carver Edison. It sounds interestingly similar to what they do. It's, and I'm going to butcher what it's actually called now, but it's employee stock participation programs, um, not actual like ESOPs, but it sounds, sounds very similar. And they basically found a way for people to take advantage of that without spending the dollars associated with it up front, yada, yada, yada. It's, it's really interesting. And they're in New York as well. So yet another example of cutting edge technology happening in New York. Yeah. You know, the, the, the probably maybe a, a little bit more of a macro question that, that a number of investors and a number of entrepreneurs are asking themselves is, um, you know, where's the market going? If the market is going to solopreneurs and, and entrepreneurs as opposed to larger corporates and what that, what that looks like in the future. So are financial wellness platforms sold as a benefit or sold into large organizations, really, really an opportunity while you know, over the next decade, you know, there's no question that we'll see more and more solo entrepreneurs. And it's a space I'm very, very excited about through uh, an investment in, in Lance bank amongst others. Shout out to Una. I was about to say that. Shout, Shout out to Una. Shout out to Una and that team. Phenomenal team. Um, they, uh, who, who are, who are, by the way, uh, live and, and shipping cards, which is, which is super, super exciting. But I thought, I thought you were about to say live on Clubhouse right there. I, I really thought that was about <laughs> what you were about to say. <laughs> we would lose the entire audience immediately. Uh, to go to Clubhouse to, to hear about, um, you know, West Coast VCs and their and their dating lives. But um, back to No Shade, of course, there's going to be an accelerated uh, number of folks that are pursuing a solopreneur uh, career. But what you're also seeing for this time is employers are taking responsibility for financial wellness. And that's something that we couldn't say five or 10 years ago. And we can say now that employers need to compete to in order to compete in order to retain talent they need to have a financial wellness platform absolutely 
Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of layers of that that are the future and you nailed the dismount on that one. I know we're running out of time. So I want to ask you just a couple more little questions that I kind of teased that I would ask you earlier. And if folks have been regular listeners, they know that John is around pretty regularly. This is the first episode we've done that actually features John, but he's been a co-host on a number of previous ones and we will have him back to talk through even more pieces of this. But before we get to that next episode, that'll happen some other time. I want to ask you about the wellness of life and you as somebody that sat in a similar, much more, uh, established position than I did when I was at MBKC, but we've both been managing directors of accelerators. We've both, you know, tried to impart some sort of some semblance as small as it might be of balance and healthy habits to our founders. So I want to ask about your balance and healthy habits since the pandemics hit, you know, being in an apartment in New York and hell's kitchen, how have you stayed in shape? Because I know that's been a a focus of yours throughout life. I see the whoop strap on your wrist that I kind of, you know, bugged you about enough. So you finally got one. How have you, uh, how have you made that a priority in life and how's, how's that going? That's a topic that's important to me and is hugely important, should be hugely important to the entire venture community and without question is important for for founders and all the question on how I stay fit. I'll I'll rebrand that. And it's and it's how I stay as mentally healthy as possible. And as somebody who you know, it admits I've given founders PTSD, pushing them on their metrics and their KPIs. You can be sure that I try to stay fairly metrics driven when it comes to mental health as well. And the, the, the first step or the first acknowledgement is that there are KPIs in your life. This, this sounds obvious uh, in hindsight, but there are KPIs in your life far more important than anything to do with your business. And, you know, when you're in the thick of it as a founder, you eat, sleep, drink, live your business. But there are KPIs. There are facets of your life that are much, much more important. And as a founder, you need to find what those are that keep balance and keep mental health. And that could be fitness. That could be self-care. That could be shopping. That could be spending some time with friends. Uh, whatever it is, every founder needs to set KPIs around around mental health. I mean, to directly answer your question, for me, it's hit. For me, it is uh, it's it's any adventure. I do a lot of I do a lot of cycling. If any founders out there, any VCs, even anyone, any operators, anyone wants to join me for a Zoom hit class during the pandemic, hey, it's on me. It's a forty five minute class that anyone can do. But yeah, especially, like I said, can't say it enough. Mental health, so important for founders because you're putting everything on the line. You're running your gas tank, your emotional tank down to zero every single day. And if you don't replenish it, you're going to hit, you're going to hit the wall. Uh, I like to say being a founder is running, racing a race car with the gas light on at all times. So for me, you know, what I do for, to, to stay healthy is what I do to stay mentally fit. And that means I'm up at, uh, at six or seven a.m., uh, six or seven days a week, rocking a, rocking a hit class, rocking some jock jams, uh, in a, in a hit class in my small Hell's Kitchen apartment. Right. Like that was one of the things I learned was just like, I can, I can be a, a broken record about, Hey, you need a therapist. Hey, we're going to work out at 1 PM in this room over here. I need you there. Or, you know, you need to be working out on your own. Like you can beat them over the head with it over and over and over again. But what you said is incredibly true. They have a very, very, very stressful job and there's no way that he'll ever hear this. I'll just say it, but like you end up looking like Reed Hoffman pretty fast, you know, like the ability of somebody like that to get up and just work 12 hour days every day. Like I think since he's become successful, he's made it more of a priority, but I I just, every time I see a founder that I can tell is not eating enough or not, or eating too much stress eating, or, you know, just not, not prioritizing the physical and mental health. I'm just like, Oh my God, you're leaving so much on the table. You know, if you make that the priority, then everything else gets easier. And anyways, this is uh, the commercial at the end of the podcast for people to go get a therapist and a gym membership. So we'll just, we'll leave it at that. I think the commercial is to, is to talk to other founders 
Yeah. And talk to other folks in the, in the tech community that really understand it. Cause I don't care what you do. Again, I happen to, you know, do way too many burpees for a person my age, but that doesn't, you know, that's not a solution for many, for many people. I actually don't care what your outlet is. Um, but I do care that you're being, um, very particular, very practical, very specific and intentional about making sure that you have those, those, uh, those personal mental health breaks. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of obsessed with the overlap and correlation between stand-up comedians and entrepreneurs. And I think that there's, that is one of the pieces that I think is strongest. You know, you can sit with other founders at a table and I, you know, I have yet to, at this point, found anything that is of note or successful VC backing myself. So I'm just kind of like one of the fanboys or something at these tables, but somehow I still get invited to them. It, it's so necessary, you know, as stand-up comedians say, like no one understands what they're going through except other stand-up comedians. And I just don't think that entrepreneurs can explain these things to their significant others and have them understand it often or explain it to even to their therapist as important as that is. You still need a therapist founders, but you know, they have to have that community to just talk through the hard times and laugh about it sometimes. And that's, I mean, as much shade as we're throwing on clubhouse, I mean, maybe that's a good use of clubhouse and also dear God, I hope empire startups happens this year. Cause I need to get back to New York and have these conversations. Cause these are, <laughs> they're life giving, as you said. Absolutely. Well, listen, first of all, you're the founder for FinTech sake. You're the two types of people in the world. You're a founder and you're not a founder. I don't know what the successful founder BS is all about. If I find it, I'll, I'll let you know, but just starting is, is, is what it's all about. So. Um, so as our usual final question, so that folks can actually figure out what to do next, where should folks that are potentially LPs interested in learning more about Stella or founders that want to see maybe if Stella can help, where can they get in touch with you? Thanks, Zach. I'd love to hear from you, John, J-O-N at Stella.Ventures. Really appreciate being on the show and, uh, and thanks for being, uh, thanks for not being too hard on me today. Well, I know, I know you got some other interviews coming up, so I wanted to make sure that I at least, you know, I hold your feet to the fire the way that others might not. So we, we, we did it, my friend. This was fun. I appreciate you. You are the man. All right. I hope you enjoyed this very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with Johnny Z, the legend. I've included pertinent links to find John, Empire, and maybe most importantly, Stella Ventures in the show notes. If you're an early stage founder in the space or an LP looking to learn more, it's definitely worth reaching out for a chat with John. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review and all the other things posts to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the incredibly responsible host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails and a little bit more of For Fintech's Sake flavor every week, you can go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and can we please stop shooting each other strangers in public places? Deal? All right. Cool. Bye, y'all.